So we have been reading through the book of James together in this season, and uh, today we finally make it to the last chapter of James, uh, James chapter 5. Of course, these chapters are all uh, after-the-fact creations. James didn't divide his letter uh, or sermon, as it were, into chapters and verses, but they're helpful for us so that we can piece it together and study together. Uh, And in many ways, this section of James is tied directly to what we talked about last week because it starts with the same kind of saying, uh, come now. Uh, It's the same phrase in the original Greek language. And so there's there's linkage there, and yet many people think it's distinct. And uh, as we read it together, perhaps you'll see that, and we'll talk about it uh, after the fact. So, James chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 6. This is what it says. It says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Remember, if you're brand new to us, this is how James talks, right? (laughs) Don't freak out. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look. The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Your translation might say the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the days of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Strong language, even for our man James. So what is he trying to say? Well, for certain we understand that this is a warning to the rich. But who are the rich? This is a really important question for us to try to understand, because these are harsh words, and we need to understand exactly what's going on. Uh, And as you may have guessed, and many of you asked questions about this in your reading or listening to James, like, who are the rich? Is that us? Are they in the church? Are they outside the church? Uh, And the answer I can give to you is an educated guess, (laughs) because we're not exactly certain. In fact, depending upon which commentary or which preacher you read or listen to, you'll hear a different, uh, different idea. So some people think that the rich being talked about here are people who are not part of the church. They're probably people in the society that were the, this, uh, remember the the people that James are writing to have, have fled Jerusalem because of persecution. They're in, in essence, a, a, a land uh, by themselves. Uh, they are uh, separated. They don't have great leadership over them yet. Uh, and they're kind of falling victim to lots of things around them. And one of them could be, and it seems like it was in some ways, kind of the wealthy power brokers of the existing society who were oppressing them in some ways. So this is a view of who the rich were, that they were people outside the church, um, and that they were kind of oppressing uh, people within the church and people in society, specifically those of lesser socioeconomic means. So rich people oppressing poor people in that way. Uh, So what is the evidence for that? Well, it's possible it could be this because it sounds like an Old Testament prophetic passage, doesn't it? If you've ever accidentally wandered into those strange books at the end of the Old Testament, right? Amos. 
it really sounds like Amos, actually. Uh, Haggai, those kind of books in there. Like, you're like, whoa, James is just saying the stuff they are always talking about. And oftentimes, they're speaking prophetic words about people who aren't in the audience to hear. That they're speaking to the people who are being oppressed to, in order to basically say God sees you and hears you and He's going to deal with this in time. So it's possible that that's who he's talking about. Another reason for this would be that there's never in this section uh, any means of James calling for repentance. Right? We've been reading all through James. There's been James has said some hard things to us, but he's always said, so turn back right? and repent. And here there's none of that. It's judgment coming. <laughs> and so for those reasons, it leads lots of scholars, commentators, preachers to say, well, this can't be Christians. And then there's a whole other segment who says, well, when I think it actually is Christians and probably people in this church James is writing to because it connects so succinctly with the passage we looked at last week. It has the very same heading. It says, come now, listen. And last week we talked about this idea of the sins of omission. That is, that the people were planning these big uh, business ventures that were going to gain them lots of money but in so doing, they were missing opportunities not just to trust God, but to love their neighbor, right? And so now we move right into some specifics about people who are profiting at the expense of their neighbor. And so you can see how it could possibly be Christians in the church. And so here's the answer I want to give you. It's a little bit of a cop-out, but I don't think so, right? And my answer to you is, I'm not certain it matters for us in 2022. I think we need to hear what James is saying and then think about our lives and see where the overlap is and what that means for us. Fair? I hope so. <laughs> the second question we have to ask then is, okay, so what does it mean to be rich? The Greek word that's translated rich here actually means like abounding or a bountiful with. It has nothing to do with money, and yet this is the the thing that's always translated rich, uh, because to have lots of stuff, to have lots of power, to have lots of influence, to have lots of food, uh, meant that you were rich. And so this word is always translated rich. It certainly speaks of money and wealth, but it speaks of bounty in all of life, right? And so this is what James is talking about. He's certainly talking about people who have significant financial means. Absolutely. But he's also talking about people who have significant means of influence, power, stuff, status. When James says rich, it's encompassing in that way. And that's really important for us to think about. Because in our Western society, we might have different levels of bank account balances, right? It seems like all of those are going lower these days. But as Western people we are extraordinarily wealthy in comparison to the world. Certainly in our finances, but in all other ways too. So we need to give ear to what James is saying here. James says pretty strongly, look out, right? Watch. The idea is look out. Take notice. Something is up. Well, what is the thing that is up? 
He says, misery is coming your way. This is horrible news, right? He says, weep and wail. Like, enough already. Like, I'm almost ready to be done, James, right? So, like, I'm trying to preach this stuff, and every week he's telling us to weep and wail and mourn and tear our clothes, and, but you get it. He says, misery is coming. Well, what is this misery he speaks of? He's talking about judgment from God. There's no two ways around this. Now, certainly he's talking about judgment at the end of days, right? That is when Jesus returns. This is what we long for as the people of God. He's going to come and set up uh, and, and restore the world to its new creation status. And in that, there's going to be judgment for those who are living in full opposition to his kingdom. And James is saying, listen, those of you who are building great kingdoms of your own are often doing it in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. In essence, there is coming a day when your kingdom will falter, when your kingdom will fail. But he could also be talking about short of that final judgment. That at some point, God is going to act on behalf of the oppressed. This is the heart of our God. You can't read the Old Testament and come to any other conclusion than that God is for the poor and the oppressed, not the rich and the powerful. And James is saying, like, listen, take note of these things. It's really important. And then he gives four specific charges, if you will. Four things that he says these folks are doing with their wealth, with their bounty, be it money, be it power, be it influence, be it stuff. The first charge that James gives is that they are hoarding, right? Now, we've just passed through a season of COVID, and if you remember the very beginning of COVID, and you tried to go to the grocery store and collect toilet paper, do you remember that, that, that moment? And then you'd see someone with a cart full of like 87 24 packs of toilet paper right down there. This is kind of what James is talking about, right? Like you've got way more than you need and other people need it. Something is amiss here. Something is off. Listen to the three illustrations he gives. The first says, your possessions will rot. Now probably what he's talking about here is actual physical land, right? To be wealthy in the first century world of James meant you were a landholder and probably had significant lands. And so he's saying the stuff that the land produces, it's not going to produce anymore. Or it's actually producing so much that you can't use all of it. And so some of the harvest is actually rotting. That's the picture. You get it? Like way more than you need. The second is your clothes are going to be eaten by moths, right? What a strange thing to say. What's he saying? How do clothes get eaten by moths? I don't really know this because I have like six t-shirts and three pairs of pants. Right? <laughs> Let's just live this. But the idea is like these are clothes that are in a closet that aren't getting worn. Like you have so much stuff that's just feeling away there and you're not wearing them so moths are eating them. He's trying to give us vivid pictures. And then the third one he uses is fascinating to me, perhaps the most compelling of it all. He says, your silver and your gold are corroding. The word is rusting. Now, I am no chemistry person, 
but I know this, silver and gold can't rust, right? And yet James says they are. He's making two points, I think, with this. The first is, you have so much money that you can't use it, and it's eventually rusting, right? So it's kind of like heaping, and there's nothing to do with it. Fine. But he's making a secondary point, because silver and gold don't rust. He's saying what you actually think is valuable isn't what it actually pretends to be. See it? It's actually fake. Now, it's real gold and silver, but the illustration makes the point. It's not the value you think it has. You're hoarding it, and yet maybe you shouldn't. And the hoarding, James says, actually illustrates the condition of our heart. Because the word for hoarding is the Greek word translated elsewhere, treasuring up. Remember what Jesus famously says in Matthew chapter 6? He says, don't store up, right there, treasure up for yourself, treasures on earth. Listen to his words, where moths and vermin destroy. James isn't writing something new. Jesus is James' teacher. And where thieves break in and steal. Jesus says, the valuable things are the things that advance the kingdom of God. And there's a really important and and non-semantical thing that we need to think about. That is that we live in such a strange, dichotomy-oriented, binary world where like, there's the future heaven and the now earth. And that's actually biblically untrue. Heaven is real, and we thank God for it. That uh, the moment we breathe our last on this earth, we are in the presence of God through Christ. Heaven, right? But that's not God's ultimate reality. God intends through Christ's full resurrection power and victory to restore this earth. A new heaven and a new earth. And so the Scriptures, if we read them right, say that actually the investments we make now have new heavens and new earth consequences. Do you see this? So when Jesus says store up treasures in heaven, he's not talking about some esoteric spiritual thing. He's talking about investing your bounty properly now for new creation harvest. Does this make sense? James is saying the exact same thing. Hey, listen, no one's telling you you have to like scratch by But if you've got so much clothes that the moths are wearing them more often than you are, or if you've got so much gold and silver that it's actually rusting, or if you're collecting so much harvest that you can't even reap or harvest it all, something's off here. You're missing the singular purpose that God has given you in blessing you in that way, which is to be a blessing to the world, right? Abraham's covenant of Genesis chapter 12 that I will bless you, and you will bless the nations. This is what James is talking about. No need to hoard. See, when we hoard, it actually reveals about our heart one of two things. Probably both of them are true. The first is that we are finding our security in the things that we are hoarding. That my future is only as secure as the bounty I have accumulated. Or, a little bit more overtly sinister, I really don't have compassion for the needs of those around me, so I'd much rather let this just go to waste in my upstairs closet 
and be a blessing to someone around me. Now, those are hard things to come to grips with in our heart, but James is telling us you've got to be honest. Unless we're honest, we can't have the transformative power of the gospel. James says the wealthy tend to hoard. The second thing he charge, the second charge he makes is even more significant. He says that they defraud, one translation says. Another translation says withhold. And the reason those two translations are different is, um, and I don't mean to throw a whole monkey wrench in your belief in the Bible, but the Bible is put together based on several different manuscripts from the original language. And uh, great scholars help, to, help us to understand based on how old the manuscripts are is how reliable they are or how many speak the same thing. Um, but in the old manuscripts of James, there are two different words. <laughs> and so different translations use the different manuscript. One word is defraud, one word is withhold. They're very similar words. And it almost doesn't matter because in the context, they end up meaning exactly the same thing. That is, at the end of the day, you're not paying your workers. Right? So this is a wealthy person who is employing people to work his or her fields, likely his because of the society of the day, right? And they're coming and working, and he's not giving them the wages that they are due for the work that they have rightly performed. Now, think about this illustration as James is using it, if, in fact, it's not an actual event that's happening. And that is that you have the wealthy people who are the landowners. The poor people don't own land, so the way they can make money is they go work the land of the people who own it. And they are absolutely, utterly dependent on getting paid every single day for the wage, for the work they have earned to literally buy their daily bread for their family. Do you see this? And so what's going on here is the end of the day comes when payment is due, and this person is refusing to pay. And leaving them hung out to dry, as it were or perhaps giving them less than he promised. And James is saying, you are using these people like machines, not image bearers of God. This is a problem. They are cogs in your profiteering machine rather than people created in the image of God who you have opportunity to bless simply through following through on your agreement with them. Incredible. James says, listen, it's not just their colleagues who hear their cries. It's the Lord Almighty who hears their cries. Some of your translations say the Lord Sabaot. That's a literal translation. The NIV uh, translates it into Almighty. Sabaot means hosts, right? The Lord of hosts, right? And he's, that doesn't mean God's someone who likes to have people over, though he does, right? That means like, host means like armies, right? Like here's the God who has all the armies of the world at his control. He hears their cries. Stop defrauding them. And the third thing that James says gets deeply personal to the heart again. He charges them with indulgence or indulging themselves. He uses two words here. He says, you are loving luxury, or living in luxury. And that's not an overtly negative word, though it should 
give us some pause, right? Uh, literally, in translating that, that phrase in the original language, it speaks of living, living a soft life, like having no pain or struggle. Things come easy because you're not having to really struggle for the money you need to make it through that day. Uh, just having everything you need. It also has the idea of kind of like um, hobnobbing with the upper echelon of society, Right? Uh, in that day, that meant hanging out in the ornate washrooms. That doesn't translate well to our day, right? Especially the washrooms here at Spring Garden. But you get the idea. But then James turns and uses the second word to sort of peel back another layer. He says, not only are you living in luxury, but you are living in self-indulgence. And that word actually means like, pursuing pleasure above everything. And it has a very negative context, almost like pursuing pleasure at the expense of living God's way. Right? Throwing God's ideals to the wind and instead going after comfort and pleasure as hard as you can. James is saying, look how you're living. And then he finally gets to the last charge or statement. And this is really difficult to understand. Right? He says, you are condemning them and you have murdered them. And this person is a righteous one, he says. What on earth is going on? Has someone literally been murdered? It's possible. Or it's possible James is speaking allegorically. We don't know. Either way, it's just as significant. The idea of condemning speaks of looking down in judgment on someone. Now, this could have happened in one of two ways, probably, in the society of that day. That is, because this person was rich and powerful and, and bountiful and had everything they did, they could cast judgment on people and push them down. Or probably even more likely is that the courts of that day were wildly corrupt and over-influenced by the people who had significant means. And so you could bring charges against people and use them in a corrupt court and, and forcefully use your wealth or power to bring judgment against a person. It could happen like this. That someone who had land, but just a little bit, and was just making it by, who you, through the courts, seize their land, and by seizing their land, take their very livelihood. Does this make sense? That perhaps it's a physical murder that actually happens, and to be wealthy and powerful in that day, in some ways in our day too, means that you can stomp out people of lower status in life and tend to have a better chance of getting away with it. But it's not just about actual physical murder, is it? Because all through this book of James, James has been trying to get us to see our neighbor through the God-given value and identity that they have. As brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, co-heirs of the kingdom, or just in general as humanity, created in the image of God, image bearers of God, that when you stomp them out, you are trampling on God Himself. And so, to demean or to oppress, to seize land, to take livelihood, to withhold, hold money 
was in essence robbing them of their livelihood or their very life. Either way you interpret it, it's the same end result. And so you have in the societal structure of that day, uh, as in many ways you have in our day, the top landholders, people of wealth, people of power, people of influence, ruling the livelihoods of so many other who are at the will of those folks. And James says, if you're a follower of Jesus. Really important if, right? Because if you're not, none of this matters. right? Even Paul says that this way. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Hoard, do what you want, whatever. But if Jesus really is our resurrected Lord, then it has bearing on every single aspect of our life, including what we do with our abundance. Our abundance of time, our abundance of talent, our abundance of treasure, our abundance of power, our abundance of influence. Jesus has lordship over those things. We actually don't. And so we're meant to do it, to wield it, in the way that he does. So I think, to us in 2022, and perhaps to James's audience in the early 40s of the first century, James is less concerned with identifying exactly who the rich are and much more concerned with saying all of you have a tendency when you have the means to act like this. And when it gets to its extreme, look at what it becomes. And you look nowhere else than around the world and see what happens to power and wealth and influence gone astray and used for personal security and significance. It is crushing to other people. So how do we, in 2022, how do we, if we were in the diaspora that James was writing to, how do we avoid sliding down and ending up like that in some way? And I think the answer that James would give you is the answer that I've been suggesting to you the whole way. That is that we can't be only hearers. We must be doers, right? We can't just hear this warning. We have to live differently. But you remember from James chapter 1, there is a really important hinge between hearing and doing, right? And it is welcoming. If you don't welcome the gospel... What James means by that is find your true identity in it. Then you will be a hearer and not a doer. So let me invite you to find your identity in the Gospel again this morning. As people who tend to be rich. Here's how Paul describes the Gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. This is the gospel. 
of a God who had the luxury and the glory and the power of the heavens and yet submitted Himself to the mess and the misery of this earth and the sin and the brokenness that exists here. And was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Why? For His good? No. So that He wouldn't hoard. So that He would share with all who could be blessed by it. And so we know about God four really important things, do we not? The first is that God does not hoard. That God doesn't consider His power or His influence or even His holiness as something to be contained just to Himself. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. He says, He who did not spare even His own Son. If you were a hoarder, right, the last thing you would give up was your own Son. But gave Him up who for us all. How will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things. See, James is not calling us to some moral status as people who don't hoard and give away our stuff because we're morally good people. He's calling us to live out the character of the God we love and serve. But it's not just that God doesn't hoard, it's also that God doesn't withhold. God does not withhold His grace from us. In fact, what God does withhold from us is the judgment we deserve. Listen to what... What Paul says famously in Romans chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death, right? What we deserve is death and destruction. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God withholds from us the death we deserve. We call that mercy. But He does not withhold from us the life that He longs for us to enjoy. We call that theologically grace. God does not hoard. God does not withhold. And oh, by the way, Jesus is not self-indulgent, is He? A famous hymn of the early church that is written down in Philippians chapter 2 says this. Who? This is about Jesus. Being in the very nature God. Right? The highest of the highest. The holiest of the holiest. Did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Perhaps we could say it this way to translate it into James' language. Jesus was willing to not keep using the heavenly washrooms. He came down to use ours. Right? Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. For God did not send his son in... Oh, that's the next one, Jack. Made himself in human likeness. So that Jesus, not self-indulgent, not seeking pleasure or comfort above all things, does that mean Jesus didn't engage in things he liked? Of course not, right? It meant that he lived in such a way that was given to the kingdom of God. And then lastly, and most importantly, we saw that James says of the rich that they condemn and they kill. Do you remember what James says about that? When they do that, he says in, in the NIV, they do it to someone who's innocent. But the word innocent is a Greek word, dikaio, right? It means righteous, actually. They do it to, to someone who's righteous. It is that when God looks at that person, he sees them with no wrong. But it's a singular thing, and so many believe, and I think rightfully so, that ultimately the picture that James is painting is that, that when you do this to the least of these, you have done it to Jesus himself. 
the ultimate righteous one. Now again, James doesn't make this up. Jesus himself says this. Remember the sheep and the goats? Um, Jesus is separating people. He says, hey, when I was in prison, you came and visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in need, you met me. And they said, we never did that for you. And Jesus said, but when you did it for the least of these, you did it to me. James isn't making something up here on his own. He's using Jesus' teaching to say that when we live a certain way, we're contributing to the kingdom that God is bringing to this world. We're contributing to the renewal of all things. And we're living God's character in a profound way. And Jesus, of course, lived this way. We know John 3.16 pretty famously, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The verse that follows it is just as powerful. For God did not send His Son into the world, listen, to condemn it, but to save the world through Him. James is not calling us to some high moralistic life that shows that we're like in a Puritan-esque way better than everyone else around us because we live at this high standard. He said, you're God's people now. You've got to look like Him. You've got to act like Him. It matters how you live. The kingdom of God is at stake in all things. And so I say humbly to you and to my own heart, the very words that Jesus Himself wrote in Matthew or spoke that are recorded in Matthew. He said, Just as you have freely received, so also freely give. In other words, if those four statements, underneath the big statement about the poverty of Jesus for your richness, are true, if that's your identity, if that's who you really are, then live that way. Live on the basis of it. Be assured that the bounty of stuff in this earth cannot provide you the fullness of life that you long for. Only Jesus can. And therefore, four things. Do not hoard. Right? Now, am I suggesting that you're like the people James described? I doubt it, right? I really doubt it. And yet, if we think about rich, being rich in its fullness, right? Power, influence, time, talent, treasure, stuff. It's really important for us to think about this because we tend to hoard a little bit. Now listen, let me say this. That's really important, right? What I'm not saying is don't have a savings account, Right? What I'm not saying is don't plan for your kid's college education. What I'm not saying is don't have an emergency fund, right? What I'm not saying is live paycheck to paycheck. No one's talking like that. James is talking about things that are like just sitting, like that you don't even use, like you don't even need, you don't even use it. You don't... And beyond that, I think this is biblically accurate, that God would call us to actually budget for generosity. Not just wait to see, oh, it's been five years since I used that, so I guess I could give that away. Like, actually in your budgets, I'm talking about your money budget, your time budget, your talent budget, your power budget, your influence budget. What would it mean to include in, to include in that categories for generosity? That's someone who's living in the identity of the gospel. 
That's someone who, in the Old Testament ways, leaves the edges of their fields for the foreigners or the needy to come and reap a harvest for themselves. Think of the kingdom impact that could have if we lived collectively that way. That God's character would be on display in tangible ways that are far more powerful than any sermon that someone might stumble into. Simply because we've actually believed we are who Jesus says we are. We don't need to hoard. Likewise, we don't need to withhold. And hopefully we don't need to ever consider defrauding anyone. You know, this means, church, we need to be above board and full of integrity in all of our financial dealings. That what the government says we owe in taxes, we owe in taxes. That we don't find crazy loopholes around it. That we don't live for ourselves. And that the people that serve us, because chances are many of us aren't employing people, but the people that serve us in this world are due what is rightfully theirs. Whether they gave you A++++ service at lunch afterwards today, or just a solid C, how about you be generous to them in the tip that you leave for them? They depend on it. They deserve it. It's an image bearer of God, not a machine who's serving you food. <laughs> you see this? But it's so easy to slip. I, no one is, is sinister in this way that sees the world like that, but we slip into it all the time because we just live in our own way. And if you do, in this moment or in the future, have the blessing of owning your own business or being over people in a way that sees their salaries or things like that, can I ask you, on behalf of the character of God, to be a generous employer? I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, the Christian-owned businesses should be businesses that every single person wants to work for because they pay their employees well instead of earning some massive profit at the top. Does that mean your company shouldn't be successful? Of course not. Doesn't mean you should be compensated for your job at the top of the company? Of course not. But we don't need some kind of crazy massive difference. We're different kind of people, right? I'm not talking about legislating change in politics or anything like that. That's financial systems. There's a different way to see that. I'm talking about you as a follower of Jesus. It's different for us. The character of God is on display. We're investing for kingdom impact in the future. Think about the impact that could have. Don't hoard. Don't withhold. Third one, and i gotta, I got to stop and preach just to my heart right now. I'll be vulnerable and honest with you. Don't be self-indulgent, right? Listen, it's really important for me to say this. This does not mean that you shouldn't take a vacation, right? This does not mean that you shouldn't have nice things. This does not mean that, you know, you shouldn't have a comfortable chair to sit in or, or any of these things. No one's saying any of those things. But we need to be on guard that we are not trading the mission of God for personal comfort and pleasure. And I've got to be honest with you and vulnerable with you. That's hard for me sometimes. 
Because you know what I love? Comfort. It feels super good. You know what's like second to comfort only by a millimeter? Pleasure. Right? Like, you get it, right? Good food. Nice place. Good stuff. Nothing wrong with any of that. But there is a shift that happens. And we see it in the Old Testament, in the prophecies of Haggai, that says, listen, you've built paneled houses for yourself and you left God's house desolate. What happened there? Are they wrong to have paneled houses? Of course not. But somewhere, somehow, it shifted. And all of a sudden, the pursuit of pleasure and comfort came at the expense of the mission of God. Or, if you like the New Testament better, in John's letters to the churches, Jesus' letters to the churches, the church at Sardis, Jesus says, you have traded mission for comfort. And because of that, the end is coming. We need to be really careful. Again, take vacations. Have nice things. (laughs) No one is suggesting any of that is wrong. But be on guard. Be aware that it, it can come and it does happen that we lose our passion for the kingdom of God by pursuing pleasure and comfort in front of it. And then lastly, don't kill anyone, right? Now listen, I seriously, I'll pause and say it, and I doubt anyone has the idea they're going to go murder someone, but don't do it, okay? Let's set that aside. Can we value the God-given identity and worth of every single human being in this world? Because when we don't, we kill them. We trample them down. We make assumptions about them that aren't fair. We look down on them in judgment because they're different or maybe not at a status that we have. And every time we do that, we're stealing life from them. We're stealing value and identity from them. We have an obligation as ambassadors of this great kingdom of new creation of God to live differently. To live in a way that declares the value of every single human being. That seeks to be a blessing in so much as we can with the power, influence, and abundance that we have. But the transformation to live that way only happens if 2 Corinthians 8-9 rests deeply in your heart as who you are because of who God declares you are. Can I pray with you?